So good to be in the Lord's presence together as we worship. Um, and looking forward to telling you more about the trip. Uh, we're planning to do that at the potluck coming up. Is that next week or the week after? Um, so uh, we'll eat and then we'll have a presentation probably downstairs or wherever it makes sense and just tell you about our trip. Um, and at that potluck, I hope to share with you, uh, we, we bring back many things in our heart, many things that we've learned we want to share with you, but also something physically too, the very best coffee in the world uh, from, our, from where we were. Uh, we're going to have that, we'll serve that at the potluck, so, and you can tell me whether you believe what I'm saying is true. Uh, it is the best coffee that we've had. So I look forward to sharing more about that with you. And please feel free to ask, so it's not that you can't ask until the potluck, but, but we'll try to, at that potluck, put everything together and, and share all about it. Um, so thank you, just to say, um, thank you for your prayers, thank you for your support. Um, we really experienced God's grace in many ways, and and uh, very grateful, grateful for the opportunity to serve there, grateful for the, the effects on our lives, and we trust as well uh, bringing things home that we've learned from that we can share with you and that will help us be, uh, be better at walking together with you in this life and mission in Christ we have. Well, it's my privilege this morning to bring God's Word from Romans 8, and it's my joy to do this. It's my joy to do it in English, too. <laughs> um, it's hard to do things, to, to preach in multiple languages, uh, not that I know the other languages, but I had a translator. It's so nice just to be here and be able to dig into God's Word. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8. We're making our way through this book and so glad for uh, our other elders and uh, pastoral intern uh, Brendan as well, uh, bringing God's Word in chapters 6 and 7. I got to watch those from a distance and um, just very grateful for our teaching team. We're going to be looking at chapter 8 though. This is an amazing chapter of the Bible. Uh, it is a section of Scripture that I think is a watershed sort of section of Scripture. And what I mean by that is it's a, something that marks a change in life. And, and as we encounter what's here in Romans 8 and really understand it and, and apply it to our lives, I think it will change our lives. Uh, it's been called the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Uh, multiple Theologians and pastors would say that. Uh, one man, Philip Spenner, a father of the faith from the 1600s, said, If the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. This chapter is so rich, it holds truths that will change our lives. I, I think many Christians, we all really struggle at times trying to understand what is the Christian life about? What does God require? How do we do this thing? And, and chapter 8 comes to answer that. Chapter 7 has kind of posed the question of our struggle, right? Now what do we do? We know the law of God is good, and yet I can't do what's right. I'm lost in and of myself. And chapter 8 comes along and gives us some powerful and wonderful answers. I think we'll find as we dig in here our Christian lives renewed and set on a course of faithfulness and fruitfulness. So given the importance of this chapter, um, I know I need God's help because my job is to try to teach this and proclaim it. But we all need God's help, right, to receive it. God has a lot for us in Romans 8. So let's ask him to give and to empower the proclamation and hearing of the word this morning. So Lord, we thank you for Romans 8. We thank you for these truths that are here uh, we're so grateful you are kind and good to us to preserve this, to communicate your word, and, and this day to visit us through your word in Romans 
8, and I ask for help for myself, Lord. I want to faithfully proclaim and teach this in, in a, the most effective way I can by, uh, by the power of your Spirit so that we could all hear from you and that we could hear the life-changing Word of God this morning. I pray for all those listening that you would touch their lives, you'd touch their minds, give them the ability to hear and concentrate and understand, touch their souls, animate them in your power to receive the truth. I pray as a result of your word going forth today, there would be fresh life, fresh faith, fresh joy, Lord, in those who know you and, and also, Lord, in those who are yet to know you. Give them power to see you in all your glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing privilege we have to be before your word. And we ask for all these things because of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 17. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, oh, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. 
God's Word from Romans chapter 8, 1 through 17. I want to take you through this passage, look at its truth, to tell you the bottom line ahead of time. I think you see it perhaps already. The Christian life depends entirely, entirely on the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. We'll divide it into four sections. I want to talk about first the rescue of the Spirit, verses 1 to 4. The ruin of the flesh, verses 5 to 8. The realm of the Spirit, verses 9 through 11. The rewards of the Spirit, verses 12 through 17. You don't need to remember that, but just to tell you where we're going, that's what we're going to do. So first, the rescue of the Spirit, verses 1 through 4. This dramatic chapter follows on from the dramatic statement you already heard at the end of chapter 7. As Paul considered the the goodness and holiness of the law and his own inadequacy and inability and ruin of his own flesh, he proclaims, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. In our own power as fallen human beings, despair or self-deception are the only two choices when we confront the holy law of God. And Paul gives us an honest Look at his own agony with this issue. Trying to follow the holy law of God in his flesh, his natural man, leads him to despair. And Paul doesn't just share that for the purpose of biography. He shares that that we might see ourselves in the same. And that we ourselves might have the same cry, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And Paul supplies the answer. Romans chapter 8 supplies the particulars of that answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only rescue from our flesh, our fallen humanity, our indwelling sin is Jesus. And in and through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have rescue. We have relief. We have redemption. And so now in chapter 8, verse 1, he can say, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing declaration for us. After all of what's in chapter 7, after all the reality of, of struggles and looking at the holy law of God and seeing our own fallenness, our own ineptness, our own lostness, our own wretchedness now, We hear in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With the same sort of emotion of that heart cry, wretched man, we should hear the same proclamation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What? Good news. What a relief to to hear that, to realize that after facing the reality of chapter 7. No more despair. No more need to deceive ourselves. No more reason to pretend. In Christ there is rescue and refuge and victory. We are safe. We are safe in Him. We are not justly condemned but forgiven. And there's no condemnation. This is amazing Good news. Memorize that verse. Recite it to yourself every morning when you wake up. Recite it to yourself before you go to sleep at night. 
Share it with those around you. Proclaim the promise of this verse to those who would perhaps put their faith in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only place of safety is in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's going to go on to explain how this works. And that's really what the rest of this section is about. In verse 2, he says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set us free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit. The law of the Holy Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Chapter 7 is about the law of sin and death. It's about how the law works. The problem with the law is not the law. The law is good and holy. The problem with the law is us in our flesh. And the law of the spirit of life comes in to set us free in Christ Jesus from this law of sin and death. From living in that place of fleshly rebellion and inability before the holy law of God. Now the law of the spirit of life, it doesn't mean law in the same sense. Um, it's a little bit of a play on words. One is the law, the holy law of God in the word. The commandments of God. The uh, commandments of God which are in the whole Bible. Six hundred and what thirteen in the Old Testament, one thousand and fifty in the New. The commandments of God all flow from the goodness of God and His moral glory. And the law of the Spirit is really the principle, this 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 controlling principle of the Spirit of life. It sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now Paul is not saying something new here. He's already talked about it. Actually, before he got into that section in chapter 7 about the lostness of the flesh, he declares in verse 6, and Brennan covered this, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So this is just really a revisiting of that. After having taken us through just facing the reality of the law of sin and death, Paul comes back to this truth of being set free from the law of sin and death to serve in the new way of the Spirit. This new relationship. This new way of relating to God. It's via the Holy Spirit. It's by His work. It's by His work in our lives. And there are two principal ways we will see in this section that He works. First and foremost and most essential is what it says in verse 3. So this is how it works. This is how the law of the spirit of life works. This is how the spirit works in such a way that we can say in verse 1, there is now no condemnation. This is the, it's a flow of logic here, right? Paul's explaining this. And, and so verse 3 says, for, so for being the connecting word that means now I'm going to explain it. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't do certain things because of the flesh. He did this by the law, weakened by the flesh, uh, couldn't do. He did this. He sent his son. It says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. <coughs> Excuse me. The law could not save you. It could not lead you to righteousness before God. It could not provide for a healthy relationship with God because of your sinful flesh. 
The law merely speaks the truth and reveals what's in us, our sorry, fallen state. But God comes in to rescue us. God comes in, he takes on flesh. He becomes fully human. He becomes the man, Jesus of Nazareth. The God-man, God in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. And as Jesus, he lives a perfect life. Doing what humanity ought to have done, had humanity been free from the flesh. He lives in perfect obedience to his Father, perfect love for others. He comes to fulfill, really, all righteousness. All righteousness that God called humanity to. He fulfills all righteousness in his life. We can read about his life. We can see that reality in the Gospels. We can see his righteousness in his love, in his teaching. We can see his Lordship overall in his miracles. And he, in this precious, immeasurably precious life, went to the cross willingly. He had the authority and power in his Father to do whatever he wished to do. He did not have to suffer. He did not have to submit himself to mankind. And yet he willingly, Willingly went to the cross. Yes, it was incredibly difficult in his humanity to do that. Yet he chose in his great love and the great love of the Father and the Spirit for his people and for the glory of God. He chose to go to the cross. And then on that cross, he bore our sins. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. In all the ugliness and all the holy wrath of God for our sins was put on Christ. He suffered and He died and He was condemned in the flesh in our place. And he rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And now offers to any and all who would turn away from self and sin and receive the gift of his death in their place and his victorious resurrection. He offers forgiveness and freedom and new life. And now no condemnation in him through simple faith. How is one in Christ Jesus? This simple way, receive the good news through faith. Believe it. Receive it. Turn away from other options. Receive this gift. And in Him receive forgiveness. So, God has worked in our, through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we might be in Christ Jesus. And He has condemned sin in the flesh. He has done the righteous thing, the only right response to sin and rebellion against God. The only right thing to do in light of this this cosmic tyranny of rejecting God and His goodness and His Lordship in our sin and sins of all sort, bold sins and hidden sins. He has condemned sin in the flesh in Christ. And so now, the answer, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord through His death and resurrection. And this is 
such a key and core part of the good news that there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you've turned and put your faith in Jesus, you can say with confidence, there's now no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I am declared forgiven. I am declared righteous for Christ's sake by what He did. I am safe. I am secure in Him profound and glorious truth that should shape our lives and how we think of ourselves, how we think of living, how we think of others, how we think of everything. Christ has conquered sin and death and overcome the flesh. And in Him we are forgiven and free and there's now no condemnation for us in Christ. What an amazing rescue. What a glorious truth. And we are simply to respond Receive it and respond to it and live in it and rejoice in it. Now verse 4 starts to touch on to another aspect of how God answers this, this dilemma of the flesh. How He brings freedom. How the law of the Spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. He says in verse 4, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is an important part of how this freedom, this rescue happens. It's through Christ and His work, His substitutionary death, His resurrection, but it's also through God doing something in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law, the good requirement of the law is, fulfilled, is to be fulfilled in us. Us, described as those who walk according to the Spirit, we'll get into that in a little bit as we talk about life in the Spirit, uh, verses that are following from here. But he's explaining uh, this aspect of fulfilling, uh, of, of freedom in the Holy Spirit. And the question is, well, how does this work? What's, it, what's he talking about? People have differed on the interpretation. Some would say, well, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us by virtue of our connection to Jesus, who fulfilled our righteousness. And that is absolutely true, of course. Our righteousness is complete in Jesus. There's no righteousness that we can add to his work on the cross. There's no righteousness that we can add to his life. Our righteousness is indeed complete in Jesus through simple faith. When we trust in him, we are forgiven and we are credited with his righteousness. There's nothing more glorious and fuller than that. But that's not what Paul's saying here. That is true. But that's not what he's driving at because the second part of verse 4, it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, then how is the us described? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what you're going to find is that the fulfillment of the law is actually the life of the Spirit in us, truly obeying the law of God. We'll, we'll get into that. So if you can just hang on to that if you're wondering. I never heard that before. I think we'll see it here. I want to help you understand what the scripture says. It's through this work in our lives, we're going to see this life in the spirit that he provides the ability to fulfill the law. Now, recognize here how this is happening. This is not happening by you in your natural strength deciding all of a sudden you're going to do what the law of God requires. It's not you doing this. It's Jesus who is condemned in your place 
who fulfilled our righteousness. And it's the Holy Spirit, this, this life in the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in you. It's God from beginning to end. So don't mistake that. It's God who's at work to work in you through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, under the good love and grace of the Father to fulfill the law, to fulfill the righteous requirements, to lead to a, a new and different life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes to rescue us from the condemnation of the law and our inability to comply with the law. He does it, not us. It is a complete rescue from the flesh, a complete rescue from sin. The penalty of sin is dealt with. The power of sin is dealt with by the Holy Spirit. And eventually we'll see in the rest of chapter 8, the presence of sin as well is eradicated entirely. It's a complete rescue that God brings us. And so we ought to rejoice and, and, and put our confidence here and put our confidence nowhere else, ultimately. I love this chapter and I love these verses we're looking at. They come in to help us in our need, in our despair, in our struggles. Have you felt despair in life? Have you come to the end of your human strength recently? Have you ever felt that all your energy, your, all your ability to do what you know is good and right, to do what you know you ought to do, is gone? Have you ever been desperate for rest and relief from, from this flesh and this world and these good requirements that I can never do? Have you ever got to the place where you're tired of trying? You're tired of trying. You just can't do it. To be honest with you, I feel that probably most mornings. I feel the tiredness of body and the tiredness of soul. And Romans 8 comes to us like a wave of grace to wash over us, to remind us of the mercy and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and power of God to grant us relief, to empower us anew. And this chapter, these four verses are meant to wash over you again and again and again. And that's why I say memorize these verses. Recite these verses to yourself. Pray these verses. Share these verses with others. Let, let the power of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit be your power in a real way. Let him meet you in your desperation, in your weakness, in your inability. Even in that place where you're tempted and struggling to follow the flesh. Let him meet you there in power according to the word of God here in Romans chapter 8. Now Paul's going to go on in verses 5 through 8 to talk about the ruin of the flesh. I think it's good for us to face that, to see that, to recognize the reality of the flesh. So he's going to go on now and talk about the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And in particular in verses 5 through 8 to highlight the, the ruin of the flesh. So he says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set, the mind, set their minds on the things of the spirit. He's describing two types of living. Two different mindsets. And the flesh thinks about the things of the flesh. The flesh is our fallen human nature. The, the, the problem with the fall, the, the terrible consequences of the fall, that it, what we have done in, as humans, what happened in the garden, what we all live in, is this, 
this brokenness where we have replaced God with ourselves. That's at the core what the flesh is about. It's replaced God with ourselves. And so the flesh is focused ultimately on its own glory, its own comfort, its own acceptance, its own righteousness, its own competence, its own worth. It has rejected the reality that as God's creations made in His image, we are made for and dependent on a vital relationship with God. And we can do nothing without Him. We're not made to operate this way apart from God. And the brokenness of the flesh is this orientation to, to somehow think we can exist without God. It's, a, it's, it's preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's the emperor without any clothes. You, you can't do it. But, but that's the, the terrible brokenness of our flesh is we think we can. We think we can and we want to. We want to be the center of our own universes. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that we do it in the worst way. Thank God he restrains the, all that we might do with this. And there's the image of God in us. We, we can, even in our flesh, know the, the law of God. So there's some fear of God that may operate. But, but at the core, this is what we're about. We've rejected God. We've chosen to live without Him in this ridiculous fantasy. That's the mindset of the flesh. That's what's going on in the flesh. That's who your flesh is. Don't downplay the horror and the ruin of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us thinks entirely differently. The Spirit wants to focus on Jesus. First and foremost, the God-man, the one who comes and brings our rescue, the one who restores our relationship with God, the one who is the good shepherd with us. He wants to focus on Jesus and through Jesus bring attention and glory to the Father. He's interested in the kingdom of God, the reign of God in our lives, in, the, in the, the smallest details and in the greatest ways possible. He's interested in the kingdom of God, the reign of God. He's interested in the, the people of God, the mission of God, the compassion of God for the world and the love of God for others, the goodness of God, the enjoyment and stewardship of God's creation for His glory and our good, the Word of God. The truth of God. These are the things of the Spirit. This is the mindset of the Spirit. Entirely different than the mindset of the flesh. And to set the mind on the flesh is death, it says. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Verse 6. Not will be death. Not might be death. But is death. Life. Living according to the flesh. Without God at the center. And as the source. Reconcile with him is death. God, God promised that to Adam and Eve. And that's the reality of the flesh. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Peace with God. Peace in this new relationship with God and the life that's real life. Because now God is in our lives at the center. He's the source. We're back to what we're supposed to be in a significant way. And there's life in us, life flowing through our souls where there was darkness and death before. It says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, verse 8, cannot please God. This is the reality of the flesh. There's just no way to get the flesh to do the right thing, ever. 
your flesh is hostile to God. God is the enemy of your flesh because God is the true God and your flesh wants to be God. And there's no way your flesh will ever want otherwise. Uh, and so this hostility manifests both in bold sin and in bold presumption in all sorts of ways. We tend to think of sin as the, the really bad things, right? Murder and things like that. But sin is also anything that's done without the love of God at the core, without dependence on God at the core, without love for one another as part of what we do. And so there's bold sin and there's, bold, there's hidden sins that are really bold presumption where we think we can do life on our own. Anytime we come up with a scheme of life where God's not the one we're depending on, resting in, rejoicing in, loving, loving others for his name, any, anytime we, we do that is, is disobedience to God. But in him we can live this new life. So lack of dependence, lack of gratitude, lack of humility, lack of graciousness to others, lack of patience, lack of joy, lack of worship in him, those are all aspects of the flesh. The flesh is a savage enemy, incapable of doing right. This is the reality, this is the ruin of our flesh, our fallen human natures. It does no good to pretend otherwise. And I don't enjoy saying these things. But I won't help you if I skirt around it. If I, I won't help you if I instill some false hope and false confidence in humanity. I'll be supporting a lie. I'll be giving you an incomplete diagnosis. We need to face the dark and stark reality that nothing good, nothing good, Nothing good dwells within us that is in our flesh. Yes, we are made in the image of God and humans are full of glory. But in their fallenness, there's nothing good. That aspect. We are broken through and through and destitute left to ourselves. I cannot and will not, I will not offer you real hope in humanity apart from God. That's the truth of this section of Scripture. That's the best bad news you can hear. But there's lots of good news here. Thank God. Verses 9 through 11, the realm of the Spirit, talks about these aspects of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's amazing hope in Christ because through Christ, by His work, now we are recipients of, of the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. And the law, the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He does it through his atoning death and victorious resurrection. And now he does it in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Your flesh no longer dominates you. Paul will say, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. This life in the spirit is not a future thing. It's not a hypothetical thing. It's a present reality. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. The point of, of these statements are not to discourage you, dissuade you in some way, but to affirm that if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, if you've turned away from yourself, uh, tired of trying to do it in, on your own, tired of the, of the evil and effects of sin, tired of self-effort, and put your faith in Jesus, this reality is your reality. No matter what you might feel today, no matter how much you might feel that the flesh, this old man, this residue of the sinful nature in you is pressing in on you, no matter how much that goes on, this reality, the Holy Spirit, is in you. 
You are ones who have the Spirit, who live in the Spirit, and now have power from God himself dwelling in you to overcome the flesh. And your flesh is no match for the Holy Spirit. That's what this is teaching. We may struggle. We may have setbacks. We might have temptations. We have sin remaining. That's a reality we, we must face, honestly, soberly, but not without remembering and putting our full confidence in the Spirit of God that's in us. There's power in the Holy Spirit to overcome the effects of the flesh in our lives. And because of His work in our lives, we are able to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And we do set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And, and brothers and sisters, a very important ministry for you in this church is simply to remind your brothers and sisters of how you see that at work. Because we will get discouraged and distracted. and We might even go down a road where we're paying attention to the things of the flesh. But if you are a believer, the Spirit of God is at work in you. And there are always things to point out. Always signs of His activity in your life. So do that for one another. Remind one another of the truth that's here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And because you are a believer, you can know for a fact that the Spirit of God does dwell in you. Paul is setting this, this distinction here to say there's those in the flesh and those in the spirit. These are those who don't turn to Christ. They're not in Christ. These are all those who are in Christ are people who have the spirit. And though our bodies are unresurrected bodies, though the flesh remains, the spirit himself will actually give life to our mortal bodies. Not only is he in us now with these imperfect bodies, with the flesh remaining in us, but he will work in us to give life to our mortal bodies. He will come and, and work the resurrection in us, and then we will be finally and fully free from the effects of sin. And we will live forever in, in the renewed creation in him, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of it, the infinite, glorious, holy God dwells in you. And he's working in you. Glorious things. There's a table to show. I just want to show that and go through it very quickly. I just want you to see, though, these are 14 different things. And it's a little small, I'm sorry. But I'll say it for you. These are just 14 things that the Spirit of God does in us. There's more. Um, regeneration. He gives us new eternal life. He makes us new people. We are born again in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's new life in us. We're different people than we used to be. The flesh is not the only thing present. There's new life. We have new eternal life in the Spirit. He applies our justification in Christ to us. He gives us the ability to understand it and experience that we are considered righteous because of Christ. We are safe and secure, counted righteous. He writes the law of God on our hearts. It's just not here in the book anymore. It's here in our hearts by the Holy Spirit in us. He illumines the Word. He makes the Word pop so we understand it. I, before I knew the Lord, I had read the Bible. It just was boring and I didn't get it. All of a sudden, it was life by the Spirit's work. He testifies that we are sons and daughters. We're going to see that shortly. He seals us for salvation. He guarantees us the salvation. What, how does that work? Because the Spirit of God, God Himself, the Holy One, is in us already. Therefore, we know it will get completed. 
He seals us. He causes obedience in our lives. He empowers us for witness. He empowers us for service. He manifests God's presence in us and around us as God's gathered people. He gives us wisdom and insight. He produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, justice, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He helps, comforts, and counsels us, and He resurrects our body. The Holy Spirit is in you doing these things, and He will do these things. All these things will effectively overwhelm any power of the flesh. They will mark our lives more than the temptations and weaknesses of the flesh. Yes, Romans 7 teaches us to be sober about the reality of our flesh and our inability to obey the law. But Romans 8 teaches us that the law of the spirit of life has freed you from the penalty and power of the sin in the flesh to be free to run in the ways of God. The flesh cannot fulfill the law of God, but the spirit can and does through his people. That's what verse 4 means. That's what we see in this. The contrast and all that's being taught here. This is the, the, the thrust of the argument that Paul's making in this whole book. Being summed up here in eight in powerful ways. How does this work? What's a new life work? Well, it's the Holy Spirit at work in you to fulfill the law. To walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. To obey the commandments. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, not fully, but significantly in a real way. We need to be careful with how we understand ourselves in light of these things. Sometimes we overstate our sinfulness and our fleshliness. And we say nothing good can dwell in us, but we don't say the second part. That is in our flesh. Because something good does dwell in you, the Holy Spirit. And he is working in you real obedience. Things done out of real love for God. Real dependence on God. Genuine love for others. He's doing that. That's what this passage teaches us. And so now there's a totally different way to look at the commandments of God. Before they condemned us, rightly. They frustrated us. But now we are free. We don't come at the commandments thinking, i got to do this because if I don't, I'm in trouble. I'm already forgiven and righteous in Christ. I get to do this. I think of the prodigal son. If there was more to the story about him. What would life have been like for the prodigal son? He receives the father's forgiveness. He's welcomed back into the family. But what was the rest of his life like after that great party? I imagine there was a new heart inside of that prodigal son for his father. And I imagine all the old man's ways, all his habits, all his preferences became points of endearment and great love. I imagine he enjoyed such a friendship with his father that all the tasks of the estate were joy, even when it was hard. This is how it works when we live in the freedom and power of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom, it says. Righteousness and peace and joy. This is the life in the Spirit. And then finally, verses 12 through 7, the rewards of the Spirit. Paul says, verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Why would we do that? We have no debt there. There's no benefit there. There's nothing good there. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live in the power of the Spirit and you put to death the ways of the flesh in you, and that's what he means here by body, the ways of the flesh, not your physical body. We're made good, but there's brokenness. There's the flesh in us, the fallenness. We're not debtors to the flesh, but we're to live by the Spirit. We're, we're to put the things of the flesh to death. We're to live in the grace of God, free. And unafraid to, to look at the horror of the flesh and address it in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God according to the gospel. And so we can go on a hunt for those things. We can be killing sin in His power, free and forgiven. Unafraid to expose our, our struggles and our temptations. Going after the vermin and monsters of the flesh on a hunt with the, with the weapons of our warfare in Christ. To kill them that we might live truly in Him. Depending on the Spirit, living in the grace of God, loving what He loves, growing in the power of the Spirit in our lives, learning to hate what He hates, but love what He loves, following His ways, desiring what He desires, depending on Him, asking Him for more fruit, deeper insight, greater love, more gifts, becoming more like Jesus, more of the kingdom, more wisdom, more joy, more rest, more Holy Spirit-empowered activity, all from Him. This is the life that He gives and then Paul finishes with something so profound to serve as a basis of sorts, a foundation to anchor us lest we be tempted to think that we must somehow make this all happen in our own strength. He reminds us of this great truth in verses 14 and following. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That inclusive word in the Greek language, sons and daughters, are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This new life is one as a son or daughter. Beloved. Not just treated as a son or daughter, though that's true, you are a son or daughter in Christ. You are a son or daughter. This is who you are. Yes, even with your flesh, even with your frailty, even with your frustration, because of Christ, in the power of the Spirit, you are a son or daughter. And the Spirit of God really wants to work in your life this subjective experience, that's what this is describing, of saying, Abba, Father. Let's not discount the importance of the ministry of the Spirit in our lives subjectively. Yes, we can overplay it. Yes, it can be all about our emotions. Let's not go there, but let's not be anti-experiencing the Holy Spirit. The Spirit wants to work in your life and meet you in those moments, those dark moments and those bright moments, and to testify to your spirit that you are a son or daughter. Maybe he's doing that right now even as we talk about this. And we would love to pray for you if, if that's something that you feel like you're not experiencing like you would like to. Yes, there's different levels of it, but it is to be the experience of every believer. J.I. Packer says something about this that I think is really helpful. He says, justification is a forensic idea, being counted righteous, conceived in terms of law, and viewing God as judge. You could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God. 
But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For you, brother or sister. He wants you to be assured of this. He wants you to ground your faith on this. He wants you to ground your faith entirely on Christ crucified and risen for you and the Spirit of God ministering in you to empower you in this new life. Now in verse 17, indeed this means as those who are sons and daughters, we are full heirs but co-heirs with Christ. And as those who belong to Christ, indeed it means we're going to experience the things of Christ. We're going to suffer in order that we might be glorified with him, we suffer with him, we're glorified with him. And that's what he's going to get into in the rest of this chapter, how that fits into all this. We'll leave that for next week. But for now, let's consider these truths in conclusion. We've looked at Romans 8, 1 through 17. We've seen that it's the answer to the heart cry, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me through Jesus Christ our Lord. We see that it's this life in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. We've learned about the rescue of the Spirit, the ruin of the flesh, the realm of the Spirit in us, and the rewards of the Spirit. And now, as we transition, perhaps just take a moment. Maybe there's some aspect of this. There's a lot here. You're going to have to go back and read it, right? And pray through it. But maybe right now, there's just one aspect that God wants you to, to feast on to enjoy.